Today, I'm talking to National Institutes of Health CIO, Andrea Norris. Andrea oversees NIH's $1 billion IT portfolio that supports scientific research and discovery, such as initiatives in Alzheimer's research, big data programs, and a modernized network for all its labs across the U.S. She brings to the agency previous experiences from NASA and the National Science Foundation and deep interests in STEM education for women and girls in science. Hi, Andrea. Thank you for joining us on GovCast. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, So tell me, what are some of your priorities as CIO at NIH? So at NIH, we have been experiencing over the last few years, as in many areas, this vast uh, data tsunami, ability to generate vast amounts of biomedical data in ways that we never really could before. If you think about in 2003 with the Human Genome Program, it cost $3 billion to sequence a human genome. In 2010, it was $10 million, and now it's less than $1,000 in a few hours. That's three million times less expensive, and certainly with greater quality and and speed. And so during that same window of time, we saw the rise of the electronic health record and the adoption of that in our country, and incredible advances in imaging, medical imaging, and other kinds of areas. So we're able to generate these vast amounts of scientific data. We believe that that is an areas of opportunity for great discovery uh, in ways that we never really could do in prior years. So we have a whole set of what we call big data programs in precision medicine, our All of Us program. Uh, we're seeking to enroll a million participants uh, in contributing your health data, your electronic health record data, your genomic data, uh, your Fitbit data, data about where you work, where you live, uh, things about your health, and allowing then researchers to study that data across a very diverse population over many years of time. And we believe that that will help us find more precise ways to treat illness and disease that are tuned to your health circumstances, your environmental from where you live, where you work, and things that are unique to your disease and your circumstances. And so we're very excited about the opportunities in that space. But we have other things like our national plan for Alzheimer's research. Every 66 seconds, someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia in our country. This is an incredible challenge generating vast amounts of data. Our brain initiative, where we're looking to understand how to map the brain and how it works in ways to understand the myriad of different health issues associated in neuroscience and brain issues. Our other precision medicine initiatives in heart, lung, and blood, our HEAL initiative, which is our role in helping to deal with the opioid crisis in our country. And so it takes a billion dollars today and 10 years to get a successful drug or therapeutic to market. There's about a 95% failure rate still in our country. And so we believe this ability to bring the kind of computational power that we have, now the ability to generate these incredible amounts of data across different types and domains and to be able to analyze and do discovery. And that is just a huge opportunity for innovation and to accelerate our ability to reduce the disease and to improve the health for all Americans. In your responsibilities, you manage an extensive IT portfolio for discovery research and business applications. So where does technology play into that 
in addition to some of the things you just mentioned? So technology is absolutely embedded in and integral to everything that we do at the NIH. Today's lab, a computer is just as much a lab device as a microscope is, right? And I was uh, listening to someone the other day and they said, you know, biomedical data is now similar to the specimens, physical specimens in past times. And so it's integral to everything we do. At our campus in Bethesda, we have invested heavily in a strong computational infrastructure. Over the last few years, we modernized our network. We move now about six petabytes a day through that network of biomedical research data that's being conducted at about 110 plus labs and facilities in our Bethesda campus and near space off campus. We have the world's fastest supercomputer that is designed solely for biomedical research and implemented for biomedical research. It's called BioWolf. We've modernized that over the last five years, 100,000 computational cores and a vast amount of storage and a really dedicated team of folks who work with what we call our intramural researchers, which are researchers who are conducting basic and clinical and translational research on our campus. We have the world's largest clinical center that is devoted to biomedical research. We run about 1,500 protocols at any given time, research protocols, if you're accepted into clinical trial or clinical program there. You don't pay. This is funded by your taxpayer dollars. It can often be someone's last chance in dealing with different health issues or diseases. And so that's an incredible resource that we have as a country. We invest about a billion dollars in technology on our campus each year in this vast array of computational infrastructure, high throughput microscopes, imaging equipment, as well as just the sheer compute and storage that's needed in this new era of big data science and biomedicine. We also invest about 80% of our budget. We have a close to a $40 billion budget. About 80% of that is we distribute those funds out to what we refer to as our extramural research community. We fund about 300,000 individuals, researchers each year at about 2,500 different academic and institutions in our country, as well as medical centers. And so we get about 80,000 applications a year for funding requests in promising areas of science. These go through a robust and very thorough peer review process, which is the gold standard in our country for scientific review and merit. So these peer reviews are conducted by world-class researchers who understand the field and understand the science. About 60% of what we fund are what we call investigator-initiated ideas. So we believe very strongly in turning to what's happening out across our country who are closest to the innovation and, and opportunities. We have some programs where we say this is the general area, this is what we're looking for, and then about 60% come directly from the field. And so we invest heavily in our research programs there, many of which we're seeing, especially these large data programs, are heavily computationally oriented. Not all, though we do our fundamental science is basic science, but as we look more into these very computationally rich capabilities and opportunities, we're investing heavily in compute there too. So technology, you can't do science without technology in today's world. It's, it's really critical. And so we are very excited about those opportunities. 
You mentioned some promising areas in science. What would be some of those areas? Uh, well, so again, we're seeing tremendous discovery and opportunities in precision medicine. We're seeing some amazing treatments with particular kinds of cancers and particular some promising opportunities in some particular lung cancer treatments. Our cancer moonshot program is oriented towards really accelerating in a dramatic way our ability to treat various cancers without having patients have to go through such trial and error sometimes with a variety of different things that can be really tuned to, again, as I mentioned, your precise type of cancer with your particular genetic makeup and biological background. So we're seeing a lot in that. We see tremendous opportunities in the brain and areas of that, opportunities with treating Alzheimer's and dementia, tremendous opportunities in almost every area. Sickle cell is one that we've been seeing some real advances that we're very excited about. And also in the viruses and infectious diseases, you know, we've seen tremendous progress over my lifetime in the HIV and AIDS. And we see, you know, universal flu vaccine, you know, potential for that as well. So in all areas, and these are all important areas that affect everybody, you know, your life, your family, your children. And so at the end of the day, our health is among our most precious gifts. And we are just excited about the promise in, in so many of these areas. We know so much about human health and biology, but there's still so much more to learn and to do. And so that's a very exciting time. You've been at the NIH for almost eight years now. What led you into government in the first place? Yeah, so my first job in Washington after I finished school, I had a degree in economics. I came to D.C. excited to launch a career. And actually, I was fortuitous. It was purely fortuitous. But my first professional job was with something called the Grace Commission. It was typically each administration comes in and wants to try and do some type of government-wide initiative to improve effectiveness and efficiency. This was under President Reagan, and it was called the President's Private Sector Survey on Cost Control, but it was better, more loosely known as the Grace Commission. It was a great first experience because what they did is they brought in staff and experts and leaders from the Fortune 100 companies into Washington for, it was supposed to be for a relatively short window of time, six to 12 months to go into the different departments and agencies, not to look at policy or programs, but to look at where there might be some business opportunities to improve efficiencies. Of course, these things tend to take a little longer than originally expected, but I wound up working there for a couple of years, and it gave me a great exposure to what the federal government does, all the different roles of the departments. One of my tasks was to actually assign track what the projected cost savings were for some of these recommendations to a particular line item in the federal budget. So I actually became very good at understanding the federal budget. Probably more than most of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just an incredible world. There were so many different areas that I found to be very, very exciting. And 
so I decided I wanted to stay in support of the federal government, but I started with a large consulting firm at the time. It still is, Booz Allen, beginning with what was a kind of nascent set of uh, economy at that time, which was the computational environment. That was the beginning of the desktop PCs and <laughs> the way in which people worked and the kind of that information technology uh, revolution was really in its infancy. So I went further with formal uh, education, got my MBA about information systems and really saw the power and opportunities that technology could bring into how we actually conducted these huge programs in the federal government and, and just day in, day out business. And so that was clear that was a, a, an area I was going to stay in and at the time, NASA was one of my clients, and I loved NASA and decided to go to work directly for them, which was just an amazing time. I was there about 10 years during the 90s. It's when we were building the International Space Station, and we were launching the shuttle, you know, uh, very, very often. And uh, it was just a really exciting time to watch the power that the technology and engineering expertise, how that blended together to do exploration and discovery in just incredibly exciting ways. Um, one of the things I was privileged to do is I worked with an agency-wide group there on program and project management for how to share the lessons learned and experience and wisdom of the pioneers who came before and were working these huge, complex programs that were launching to Mars and the moon and building a living International Space Station to share their lessons learned and how you manage those kinds of activities. So we taped and interviewed and spent time with. It was an amazing opportunity to listen to real experience. It was kind of early versions of podcasts, you know, and they would use them to say, okay, this is the scenario when in training settings, you know, and stop the tape and say, what would you do, you know, and then you would listen to the person who was there who was in that situation and have them describe what they did and how it worked and what they learned from that. So very, very, very exciting. So I loved NASA. That was an incredible opportunity, a really fun decade. But I had decided I had always been at the uh, agency level and worked kind of large strategy kinds of things, which was extremely fun. And you could see big impact in things that were done across all of the centers at NIH, the Johnson Space Center, Kennedy Space Center, all of the research centers, et cetera. But I really wanted to get a little more hands-on kind of service delivery and service management experience. And so I decided to try that for a while. I went to the National Science Foundation and actually was the CIO and ran their IT services group for about 10 years too. Tends to be my, my 10, 10 year uh, track and loved NSF. NSF is a huge funder in basic research across many disciplines in our country and just a very exciting time again in technology and how to work and accelerate across all kinds of disciplines everything from biology to computational science research to social and behavioral education kinds of things. And then decided it was time to maybe move on to something uh, with a little more uh, direct focus. And I had always been so, so impressed with NIH 
and the mission of NIH, which is really to advance discovery and to reduce disease and improve the health and quality of life for all people. Uh, and I can't, you know, again, I've been privileged to work in amazing organizations with some of the smartest, most talented people in the world, but I can't say enough about the NIH mission. You know, that's what gets people jazzed every day, everyone who's there and plays a role in, in advancing and supporting that mission. It's what keeps us grounded and keeps us going, and it's just in a very exciting place to be. What were some of your most memorable experiences while at NASA or NSF? During the course of my career, some of my most exciting moments that are tied to technology and the incredible uses of it was when I was at NASA, as I mentioned, I was there during the 90s. We were launching the space shuttle frequently. We're doing our program to Mars, programs to Mars, uh, spacecraft there. We were building the International Space Station. So during that time, I got to go on full-scale mock-ups of the International Space Station. I got to go to landings of space shuttles, go through wind tunnels at our research centers. And I actually led the Y2K program. And as we turned into year 2000, I was sitting in the Goddard Space Flight Center on the space network because our deep space network system in Australia was the first government-funded entity that was going to potentially be affected by the Y2K. And so with people distributed all around the world, we were checking on those kinds of assets. What's often not widely known is NSF manages the U.S. program in the Antarctic program. And so in my role as CIO there, I had oversight responsibilities for the information technology and the cyber all the way at the Antarctic. And so that was a wonderful experience in that got to travel there twice on two different occasions to Antarctica and to our South Pole Station. The first time I went was when we were actually just beginning to build the replacement station. You might remember the bubble station that was there on the South Pole, which was sinking in the ice. And we had to build a new complex station. And the South Pole is actually Actually, Antarctica is one of the most exciting places in the world to do science because you are unimpeded by some of the interference. You can do actually space research. You can do all kinds of amazing researches because it's 2,000 miles of frozen ice literally on that planet and that continent. And then I also got to go back a second time there and the new Antarctic station was finished. And it was just amazing to see how literally at the ends of the frozen earth, how we built this technology enabled scientific intensive capability for our country. And at NIH, I just, I mean, the experiences are endless, but I just returned a couple weeks ago from visiting Uganda, where we were building our National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Disease. I went, traveled with them. They are building, and we were opening a new center of excellence for bioinformatics in Uganda, supporting both the education and the research that's done in these infectious disease areas, HIV, AIDS, and uh, Ebola, Zika. And so we were putting in place there a new high-performance computing capability, a new training lab there for students who are studying in these fields, and a virtual reality lab where both instructors and students can use that kind of virtual reality to help develop curriculum and teach people how you can literally walk through cells and walk through different aspects and teaching and developing our next generation of students. And I was so impressed with the, how many I spoke with who are planning to study and, and use artificial intelligence, machine learning, virtual reality in 
biomedical research for their own country. So these are the kinds of experiences you can have and to see the power of the integration live through all of these different dimensions in technology and advancing scientific and engineering missions for our country. Wow. Technology at work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, in discussing your tenure, tenures at at each of those agencies and then now at NIH, what trends have you observed in the technology challenges at these agencies? You know, over the years, when technology first came in, it was kind of, what do we do with all of this, right? And I think we've spent a lot of our early years in kind of automating paper processes, you know, a lot of that, I think. And then we kind of went through this kind of more mid-range type where we were, we can improve and actually rethink how we do things with the capabilities that technology can bring to the table. And so I think we went through a lot of that. We still see that a lot as we don't really have to just automate something. We can really rethink how we approach a particular workflow or, or challenge or problem. And I think now we're really in the innovation and discovery phase, right? It's, we're not quite sure how to use some of this technology, right? And really in the experimental stage, again, we're seeing the big data opportunities across many, many disciplines. And so the hard lessons we learned about how important it is to think about how you structure your data and how to model it and how to design it in such a way that it's accessible and sustainable, that we can now take advantage of some of that investment and some of those experiences with some of the advances that have been going on with machine learning and artificial intelligence. So it's just, just when I think I'm like, okay, we're there, right? There's some other new wave of opportunities that are coming to think about how we can do this kind of more discovery, experimentation, innovation in ways we just haven't really been able to do in the past. And so that's what I find very, very exciting. I'm less enamored with any particular technology than I am the excitement that it can bring as we learn and it advances. It gives us more and more capabilities. I'm never worried about today's problem will be resolved. We'll have a whole new set of problems, but we'll also have a whole new set of opportunities that will come with those new technologies and capabilities. And I think that to me is the exciting part. So you mentioned we're currently in the, quote, experimental phase. What do you think is next after that? I don't know. If I knew that, I would have retired a long time ago and be a very wealthy person. I mean, you can see the trends and directions. It is really grounded in how to best integrate technology in ways that advance how we best want to work and also using technology. That's kind of the push, but then there's a pull, how to best use technology to pull people in ways and opportunities and to think about how to do things in ways that we just hadn't been able to do. So you can think of creating these synthetic cohorts out of, if you have these large data resources that we have on precision medicine or all of us initiative, you can think about testing biomedical hypotheses against that virtual data, right? Against that, as opposed to having to go through lengthy and expensive clinical 
clinical trials. You can test out hypotheses. If you have access to data from other studies and other research endeavors that you can more easily access, you can begin to understand where people have already invested time and effort you may not be aware of. You may be able to partner and collaborate with them in advancing different aspects of a research hypothesis. You may be able to continue to contribute to that, in, you know, in new ways. So it may help us rethink in certain ways how we're approaching the scientific experiment. With all this big data that you discuss, which is, I mean, the heart of NIH, really, the cloud is a huge benefit. Yeah. Especially with making it shareable across the entire research community that you've built. How do you see the future of the cloud maybe in the next five years at NIH. We see the cloud as playing an important role in our, what we call our, you know, national biomedical research data science ecosystem, right? A lot of words. <laughs> but one of the things that I've been particularly involved with is leading is this initiative we call the Strides Initiative at NIH. And what we did is we believe that, so as these data sets have gotten so large, these are petabytes and petabyte sized data sets. So for example, our sequence read archive data set at our National Library of Medicine. It's the largest public access repository of genetic data in the world, right? And so it's too big. It's gotten too big. And as we get across multiple domains and these very large, rich data sets, it's too difficult for a researcher to go to that data set pick what they need to work on, download that and work locally. Just that model just doesn't work anymore at the size and scale we're talking about. And so we really are trying to put in place models, particularly for these really large scale data resources to put the data in commercial cloud environments, take advantage of the scale and agility that they can bring to us and bring to these data sets and some of the technology innovations that they can provide. Let the researcher go to that data in a commercial cloud, bring their data that they may have, do their compute there in the cloud, and run their analytics, run their workflows. They can do that individually. They can look to see what others have done. They can have collaborative workspaces, and then leave what the results of that discovery or their science activities, leave that behind for the next one. So we call our kind of the acronym we use around all of this is we're trying to make these rich data resources fair, findable, accessible, interoperable, reusable. And so as these have been developed over decades of time, in some cases, the data is distributed all over our country. It can be in a researcher system in his or her lab. It can be at a data center at a university. It can be in a public access kind of repository. So we want to try and make sure it's easier for people to find those resources, know they exist, and be able to find them. Equally, we want to make sure they're accessible to researchers who have a research need, who have the appropriate authorization and access rights to the data. In some cases, our biomedical data is controlled access data, meaning it has controls not only just for security and privacy, but also it is tied to the consent agreement that was provided with that data. So if you consent for your data to be used for research purposes, you may have some, some conditions around that consent. So you want it to be used only for heart research, for example, and not general research. Or you may want it to be used only by nonprofit, for nonprofit organizations or purposes. So those are a couple examples. 
usually people give a more broad consent, general consent, but there are conditions and we honor those conditions and providing access for science and biomedical purposes. So we want to be able to make it accessible. We want to make it interoperable. Again, we see the innovation coming where we can uh, marry genomic data with environmental data, with imaging data, with tumor data in ways we couldn't do in the past, and then reusable. We want to make sure that quality data can be continued to be used and sustained in ways that we can sustain in a healthy way over time, and that we're making smart decisions about how we're sustaining the resources that we have. With any IT modernization or even with any adoption of technology, and as you've seen it in your career so far, problems could arise. So, you know, protection of patient data, how are you tackling some of those issues or how have you maybe addressed them already? So we take security and privacy very, very seriously. We invest heavily in making sure, first of all, we only collect the information that we believe is important to have. So I mentioned our genomic data resource from National Library of Medicine. That data comes into us de-identified. So we don't even have the ability to associate it to a particular individual when it comes to our repository. But we make sure it's adequately protected. We do tremendous amounts of, you know, encryption of data, all kinds of whatever the state of the art security controls are, layers and layers of controls, both from administrative process, policy, and technical controls. These responsibilities are taken very, very seriously. Uh, We take our stewardship of this data, uh, uh, those responsibilities very seriously. We do a tremendous amount of training of folks to remind people of what their responsibilities are in this space as well, whether it's somebody who's a collector, a curator, a custodian, or whether it's you, you know, the person who contributed your data. And so it's a very important part of our set of stewardship responsibilities. Have you seen the role of the CIO change at all? I was in the CIO space with the original kind of Klinger Cohen Act back in the, that was probably the 90s, I guess. And that was really the first time that was from the federal level, they were trying to really move off of this model of treating technology as something separate and apart that you just acquire and really trying to get the CIO role, establishing a CIO role where you could be a business partner, a trusted advisor to really help programs and mission activities understand how they could best use this new growing resource in smart ways. And so I think that was definitely the right direction. I'm fortunate at NIH, the leadership, and it's just baked into our DNA, as I said, we don't manage technology separately than how we manage what we do for our mission. It is 100% driven. What we invest in in technology and how we manage it, how we plan for it is totally integral and incorporated into our mission and program activities. And I think that's the way it should be. I get a little nervous when we keep trying to, you know, pull it outside of that and manage it in a different way. You still have to always make sure you're getting the best efficiencies out of it and looking for economies of scale and all kinds of, you know, good best practices around it. But it's got to be baked in. It's got to be driven by mission and it's got to be baked into your mission and programmatic processes. And I think the closer we get to that, the easier and better it will be to achieve the goals of really getting the best return for our investment and the best use and best impact. With your 
maybe almost 30 years in government now. What do you think is the most important quality or skill to have working in government? Well, you have to have a passion for public service, right? What we do in the federal government, in some cases, you're not directly connecting with an in-constituent. You might be doing it in indirect ways. But these programs and missions and responsibilities on the federal government side have unbelievable impact on people's lives every day in so many ways. And so that has to be what drives you, is how to make a difference there. And as I said, I've been on the private sector side, I've been on the federal side, what I love about the federal side is you're in it kind of for the long haul, right? You want to see how the programs that you're putting in place, how the services and support structures that you're doing on behalf and in request from our constituent base, how that's making the difference, right? And so what I have realized, and this was true at NASA, at NSF, at certainly at NIH, is what we do makes a huge difference in lives. There's not a time I go to talk with groups or speak to groups where someone doesn't come up and say, you know, the research that NIH has funded has saved, had a huge impact on someone in my family or my wife or my husband or my child or someone was treated at the clinical center and it changed the trajectory of their life. Where I'm an MD or a researcher in NIH helped fund my fellowship or helped fund my training. You know, I wouldn't be where I was today without that support. And so you just have to be really grounded in that, the incredible impact that you can have from being a part of the federal government. There's lots of roles, lots of things. You know, there's a lot of things on the federal government does that really aren't done or can't be done at the scale in, in industry. And so all kinds of different disciplines and jobs and professions. So there's no single best skill or experience. There's a home for you. Uh, when you look across the vast array of the departments and agencies, there's a home for you if that's your passion, is for making a difference in a big scale way. Well, you mentioned how you have kind of tenure tenures at each agency. It's coming up on tenures yeah. in a couple <laughs> years at NIH, so... What's next for you? Oh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, it hadn't dawned on me the 10-year tenure till we were just talking. I love the science agencies. I like that environment. First of all, they're all driven by innovation and discovery. I was talking to a group yesterday. And I was like, There's a difference between problem solving and innovation and discovery or program execution and innovation and discovery. And that's kind of baked into the DNA of science agencies. And I love that, right? Because there's a willingness and an extra culture of experimentation and a priority on that discovery process. And so I'm looking forward to the important things that we'll continue to do at NIH over the next few years. One thing I will continue to do, I will add this, is do my part in trying to support and entice women in the STEM field, science, technology, education and math and engineering. I think that's really, really important. There's a lot of progress made in seeing talented women in these fields. But depending on the data that you're looking at, there's still a long ways to go. And so that's something that I feel very passionately about and something no matter where I'm at or what I'm doing, I'm going to continue to invest my time in, in that. Well, something we hope to highlight on GovCast is 
is more women like you. We've actually had a number of women walk through these doors and speak on these mics. Yeah, great. It's very encouraging to hear as a woman myself, obviously. So thank you for joining us. I, I really appreciate your perspectives. And I think that's the best way to really close out this interview. Thank you so much. And thank you for all of your work you're doing to spread the good word of the incredible influence and excitement you can have in the federal sector. Great. Thanks. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. GovCast is produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. Theme music provided by Big Hoax. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact Joe O'Neill at joneill at governmentcio.com.